Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Samir Rahim, and I'm Managing Editor here at Prospect. This week we're talking to historian Sarah Churchwell and writer Kenan Malik about race, white identity and the roots of what's known as Anglo-Saxonism. At the height of the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, Sarah and Kenan wrote essays for Prospect in the current issue which is now out on the newsstands. Sarah takes us behind the surprising roots of Anglo-Saxon identity and the curious role that Sir Walter Scott may have played in fashioning it. And Kennan looks at the history of white identity more generally. Discussion of it was once confined to the fringes, but now it's become mainstream and changing the way we see politics. I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Churchwell and Kenneth Malik to be discussing the roots of white identity politics and how that feeds into current debates around Black Lives Matter. Um, Sarah, maybe I'll start with you. Um, when we in Britain think about the racial politics of America, we often um, want to distance ourselves from it, that America has this particular problem uh, with race because of the legacy of slavery. Um, but in the piece that you did for us, you identify this, what you call an Anglo-Saxon identity that has sort of travelled back and forth over the Atlantic. Um, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's been interesting for me as an American living in Britain um, for the last 20 years or so, that, as you say, there is this kind of positioning where it's as if race, uh, slavery was this thing that happened in America and Britain abolished slavery. And so that's all good. Um, and of course, it's much, much more complicated than that. And as many listeners will know, um, Britain, uh, when it abolished uh, domestic slave, oh, you know, when it abolished slavery in the slave trade, it just offshored slavery so that it was uh, still profiting from um, slavery in the West Indies in particular. But one of the things I talk about in the book is, for example, so there's, there's an economic um, exchange there, the famous triangle trade. So the, um, the wealth that came into Britain from the slave trade via sugar and, uh, as the, and rum, you know, as the most obvious ones, and the wealth of Liverpool and Bristol as, uh, as slave ports are, you know, well known and, and uh, well discussed, I think. Um, even among non-historians in Britain. But the degree to which the economics in Britain um, were also intertwined, I think, is often uh, um, neglected. So the one the example I give in the um, 
in the essay is that the Industrial Revolution at the beginning of the 19th century in Britain was driven largely by textile and the cotton for that textile boom, which uh, I think, um, you know, 40% of the population um, depended on, I've got the statistic right in the essay, that's off the top of my head, those, that raw cotton came from the American South. So there, so that from, from the slave plantations, right? So there was an interdependence there economically. And, and because of the triangle trade, that's something that, you know, lots of people understand the, the basics of. But then there is also a cultural interdependence and a narrative interdependence. And that was part of what I wanted to get at in this essay say, was that there were these ideas around something that became known as Anglo-Saxonism that developed in the 19th century, or the late 18th century and into the 19th century, as a way to make sense of economic dominance and to post hoc rationalize it, basically. Um, and that's when we start to see theories of biological determinism emerge, and it's when we start to see you know, the broad-based arguments about eugenicism, about white supremacism in its broadest forms, um, where in America that's used to justify slavery, and in Britain it's used to justify empire, to put it in the crudest um, possible terms. And one of the ways in which that shared narrative developed was through this idea of Anglo-Saxonism. And basically, the, again, it's complicated. I mean, it's hard to do in a, in a, a short version on a, um, in, in this kind of conversation. But basically what happened was in Britain, the idea of um, British political liberty uh, as part of the, the debates about constitutional monarchism, and indeed about the debates about the Reformation, I mean, in the essay, I don't go back that far, but you, could, you can and should, um, that there was this argument about the um, ancient political liberty of Britain on the basis of this mythical tradition of a Saxon constitution, which gave Brit Britain... Uh, Britons, kind of inherent liberty. And that tradition was invoked, um, as I say, in the debates over constitutional monarchy. And in the 17th century then, when, when English, and specifically English, immigrants went to the United States, they carried what would become to the colonies, what would become the United States, they carried those traditions with them. And when they became revolutionary, you know, less than a century later, that was precisely, they would use the same rationalization, the same claim that the Saxon people were inherently free and that that was why they would have to separate themselves from Britain in turn. And that's just one example of the way that it starts to go back and forth, this idea about um, the Anglo-Saxon race as being, as, as, a, as a category that develops an idea that it is a race and that it has certain attributes and certain entitlements by birthright. Um, and eventually that cultural political argument, which is, you know, a metaphorical birthright, becomes a biological birthright. So the conversation evolves over the course of a century or so, and, you, and the story starts to emerge that, that um, Anglo-Saxons have uh, rights to liberty inherently, and that therefore, um, by the same logic, other groups of people, other races as they're beginning to be designated, uh, do not have those rights to liberty, and indeed, uh, therefore, you can argue that they were born to be enslaved, that they deserve to be enslaved. And that's just one aspect of this very kind of complicated uh, dialogue around ideas about this, this thing that got known as Anglo-Saxonism. And what I wanted to do was sort of trace some parts of the emergence of that idea and what eventually became an identity. That's so fascinating. Sorry, as I said, it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to do briefly. I'm sorry that was so long. No, no, it's 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 good to unpick it actually. And 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 Canon, just coming to you, you you know, you delve into history as well. And one of the most fascinating things in your essay 
is when you talk about how in Britain in um, uh, the late 19th century ideas of race were very closely connected and even overlapped with class. Could you tell us a bit more about that? That's right. I think I, I agree with Sarah that slavery is hugely important to British history and to the development of Britain. But the concept of race um, on both sides of the Atlantic, actually, to a, to a degree, is more complex. Um, certainly the issue of slavery is more important to the, the discussion of race and in the origins of the concept of race in America than in Europe. In the, and in Europe, as you say, the question of class was um, equally significant. Um, the meanings of both race and whiteness were significantly different in the 19th century, say, than they are now. I mean, today we think of race as primarily defined by skin color. In the 19th century, races were distinguished by class as much as color. And it may be difficult to comprehend that. You know, you talk about this to, to many people, and they're usually quite shocked by the degree to which, in the 19th century, thinkers saw the working class as racially distinct, in the same way as many now view black people as being racially distinct from whites. There's a, um, an article I quote in, 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 my, in, in my essay, um, and it's typical of, of 19th century uh, views. Um, it, it's, a, it's an article about uh, the working class in Bethnal Green, which is a, a working class area in, of East London. Um, and it's in the paper, news, it's a newspaper called the Saturday Review, to which um, many people, uh, people like Huxley and, and, and so on, contributed. And it talks about how the distinctions and separations of English classes are a parallel to the separation of slaves from white. And quite interestingly, it adds that that separation is important because each has to keep to its allotted place in the social ladder. It's the words that in, the, in the very article. And it, it says the English poor man or child is always expected to remember the condition in which God had placed him, just as the Negro is expected to remember the skin in which God had placed him. And that's, uh, that, that was not a peculiarly British view. You find similar kinds of views in, in um, uh, France, in Germany, uh, and to a degree in America. So today, when we talk about white identity, we talk about it in the context of the working class, but historically, the working class had the, 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 the distinction of not being white. You see that a little bit in the US, but, but I think the US here is quite distinct. And, and that the, some of the examples that Kenan quotes in his, um, in his essay where, you know, where the working class white person can be described as a Negro in 19th century Britain would not happen in America. Um, the only place where that actually, because, because you've got race-based slavery, so because in a domestic context you have race-based slavery, everything comes down to the difference between white and quote-unquote Negro. And so the, the category of Negro is unbelievably important to, it, it's, it determines power, it determines citizenship, it determines all of your legal entitlements. It's literally the definition of whether you are free or enslaved. So you don't see that kind of slippage, certainly not in the antebellum period. What's interesting is that as uh, European immigrants start to come in 
um, around the time of the Civil War, the 1850s, the, and, and, and then you see less immigration during the Civil War, of course, and then in the, the spike that came um, in the postbellum period in the second half of the 19th century. Um, so for listeners, I should say the American Civil War is 1861 to 1865, right? So you've got a kind of mid, you know, pre-mid-century and then um, post-war. And the, um, you, the, what you do see is um, famously the, the most... Um, uh, familiar case of this, of, of exactly what Kenan's talking about, is the Black Irish. So the way in which Irish workers were troped as uh, African, and they were represented in um, in political cartoons and in posters as literally black. So they were depicted with black skin. Um, but what you see there is the racialization of otherness, um, and that was also marked by class. But so there are instances where that happens. But again, it is not white American working class are not troped as Negro at that time. And so I just think, because otherwise it gets, it, because this is a, such a confusing, the whole, po the whole point of the kinds of essays that Ken and I are trying to do, as I understand it, is to try to unpick these massively conflated and complicated um, narratives that ha discourses that have developed so that, um, as Kenan says, you can look at the word Negro and think you know what you're looking at and actually it means something different in different contexts. So I think we need to be quite specific about which context we're speaking of as well, or it will all get hopelessly confused. I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I also think that, the, for instance, the 1890s and the run-up to the imposition of Jim Crow laws in the South is, is quite interesting in the way that Americans dealt with the question of race and class. So that in the 1890s, you had the rise of, of fusion parties where um, uh, we, you had economic depression, you had um, farmers, so it's black and white being um, turned to sharecroppers. And you had in response to that, many who, many blacks who then supported the Republican Party, which was the, the anti-slavery party, of course, and whites, many of whom supported the now defunct populist party that came together in many states, North Carolina, for instance, to um, oppose the Democrats um, and to create a, a, a kind of a, a fusion parties of both blacks and whites. And in places like North Carolina, they won a majority of seats. Um, and it was in response to that that the Democrats launched their, the, the, a campaign portraying, warning the horrors of Negro rule um, through such things. And, and in response to that, that many of the Jim Crow laws um, uh, came into being in the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, actually the, the, um, the horrors of Negro rule uh, is, it, it's, it's an immediate post-war, post-Civil War response by the White South, and, and it's the response to Reconstruction. So Reconstruction, um, as you know, Kenan, in the, is the period in the uh, 1870s that immediately follows the Civil War, and that was this radical experiment in interracial government. And it was, uh, it was absolutely flatly rejected by the White South, and, and that's why um, you see that's exactly the moment at which um, the first Ku Klux Klan establishes itself in order to reassert white rule through terrorism. And then you also see um, more political movements developing. But so literally, like the, there, you know, there was a, a black senator who was 
um, shot and murdered in cold blood in the in broad daylight, and he had been, he was an elected senator, and he was just murdered, and that's in the 1870s. So you have this horror, as you describe it, this horror at Negro rule, and the imposition of the um, Jim Crow laws, what was called the Black Code, originally um, begins instantly in the 1870s, but as you say, it becomes increasingly institutionalized uh, by the 1890s and into the turn of the 20th century, and it's in uh, 1896 that we have the famous um, Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court decision that says that separate can be equal, um, which is, of course, the, the basis, uh, the legal basis for um, national Jim Crow laws. Up until then, they had been very, very local and district by district. But what we see in the 1870s and the 1880s is the systematic effort by the political white leadership in the South to pull, claw back the rights of enfranchisement, to claw back the rights that were established by the 14th and the 15th Amendment, which um, gave people equal right to, well, black men equal right to vote, uh, not, uh, not women. Um, and that's the first time, by the way, this is an aside, but it's important in terms of understanding this history, um, the, that was the first time that the word male was put into the US Constitution to explicitly exclude women uh, who had not been explicitly excluded until that point. Um, but anyway, so there were these, you know, obviously this, um, the move toward enfranchising um, the, the black male population and then the black codes were instituted, which were there to, uh, as I say, to push back against those rights. So that's when you have um, the poll tax. Uh, so you, you have on the basis of poverty that people won't be able to be enfranchised when you've got a largely uh, a black underclass. Um, you, and then things like the grandfather clause, which says that your grandfather had to have voted in order for you to vote. Um, you have literacy laws passed and all of these local measures that, that that are literally workarounds, that are figuring out ways to say, okay, the Constitution says you can't discriminate on the basis of race, but it doesn't say that we can't discriminate on the basis of education. And so what we'll do is deny black people education and then discriminate on the basis of education. And if this sounds like it's some post hoc conspiratorial thinking, you know, historical thinking, oh, they did this on purpose. Um, they absolutely did it on purpose and they gave us the receipts. I mean, they wrote letters, they, they put it, they, they issued, they gave speeches where they explained that this was exactly what they were doing. So this isn't inferential. We're not interpreting this historically. They came out and said, this is how we're going to do it, um, white people. What we need to do is to implement a poll tax. That's how we can keep the Negroes. And of course, they didn't use that polite a word. That's how we can keep them in their place. Um, so those, are the, those arguments and efforts begin in the 1870s. And then over the course of the next 50 years, they, um, they uh, embed and instantiate themselves across the American um, governmental systems, both on a local level and then on a federal level, thanks to uh, Wilson um, at, at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, there's such a fascinating historical um, argument. If you just fast forward to, to, to the present day, and, and one a theme in both your pieces, but particularly yours, uh, uh, Kenan, is this resurgence um, of an idea um, of linking whiteness to being working class. And are you saying that early in 19th century it was very different and um, uh, it was almost the opposite, but there almost seems to be a desire now with a sort of identity politics of the, of the right, as it were, um, to associate whiteness with being working class. Why do you think that's developed? The whole series of developments that take place in the post-war world um, that um, drives that. I mean, the, the first point to make is that you know, we now think of identity politics as a politics of the left. But in fact, in a way, what both Sarah and I have been saying is that identity politics is really the, the, the politics of the reactionary right. Um, and, and race is the first expression of the politics of identity where, where people's um, rights, their worth, their aspirations, their needs, and so on, were defined by their identity, by their race, by their ethnicity. Um, and it was only the post-war world that um, that the, the relationship between right and left and, and identity changes. So that in the post-war world, um, in the wake of the Holocaust of, of Nazism, um, overt racism became less acceptable. Racism did not disappear, of course, but anti-racism slowly began to occupy the moral high ground. And many on the left now began to take on um, a form of identity politics. Um, it became a weapon wielded not in the, rate, in, in the name of racism, but to confront, to confront racism and oppression uh, of challenging inequality. You had the new social movements, such as you know, the Black Rights Movement in America, the Women's Movement, Gay Rights Movement, uh, and so on. And, oh, and what's happened is that over the past 30, 40 years, the language with, with, with which, we, which we use to understand um, social issues and social problems has shifted from being that of class and politics to that of being identity and culture. Um, um, one of the reasons for that is that if you go back to the 1960s, um, identity politics um, provided a means of challenging oppression and the blindness of much of the left to that oppression. But it was also linked to much wider projects of social transformation. But a key shift over the past half century has been the disintegration of those wider social projects. And as those the, the trade unions have weakened, new social movements have disintegrated, much of the left has too, and the recognition of identities become not an end, but an, uh, not a means to an end, but an end in itself. 
And so in that process, the very language through which we've come to understand social relations, social problems have transformed. And at the same time, many sections of the working class have become to feel both economically and politically marginalized. And that marginalization is at root the product of economic and social and political changes, but many have come to see it as a cultural loss because the language we use to understand social problems has become that of culture and identity. And the very decline of the economic and political power of the working class has helped obscure the economic and political roots of social problems. Um, so many in the working class have also turned to the language of identity to express their discontent. And once class identity becomes seen as a cultural racial attribute, then those regarded as culturally or racially different are often viewed as threats, hence the you know, hostility, growing hostility to, to, to immigration, to Muslim, Muslims. And it's allowed the far right then to link a, a reactionary politics of identity rooted in hostility to migrants and to Muslims, to economic and social policies that once were the staple of the left, um, defense of jobs, support for the welfare state, opposition to austerity. And the result is a kind of new kind of mass politics and the refashioning, the, the reaction politics of identity for a new age. And Sarah, Donald Trump, you know, billionaire Moncasey might be, has definitely been exploiting the idea of, you know, he's the, you know, he's fighting for the, the white working classes against um, threats to economics with, you know, globalization, but also very much identity as well. Yeah, absolutely. So this notion that there's a kind of white grievance here um, is one that, you know, a lot of people are, are recognizing and addressing. I think that the, the issue um, is the, the degree to which if you are, if you are white, um, that there are historical advantages that you uh, enjoy, certainly in the United States, and I would say in Britain as well, um, that have created structural advantages, so systemic advantages, like you're more likely to go to university, you're more likely to get an advanced degree. Now, once we start to break down these groups, as Ken is saying, we end up talking about, so the Trump supporters are those who did not go to university, those so-called left behind um, white people. But that's precisely the point. They're left behind. Who are they behind? Well, they're behind other white groups who were able to enjoy those structural advantages. So they don't feel themselves as enjoying those structural advantages any longer, but they recognize that those structural advantages were once felt. So they think that their father enjoyed those advantages or their grandfather enjoyed those advantages and they don't understand why they're not enjoying those advantages. Now, one way of understanding why they don't see themselves at, there are different ways of, of understanding that and interpreting that um, loss um, or, or that perceived loss. Um, one is to argue that the thumb, that the cultural, the social thumb used to be, or the political thumb and the economic thumb used to be on the scale for them. And that as equality begins to be asserted by other groups, the thumb is less perceptibly on the scale for them. And that loss of privilege registers as, and that loss of entitlement registers as a net loss rather than actually as simply an equalizer. Um, that's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that you are the victim of other groups. Um, and instead of seeing this as everybody leveling the playing field to see, the, to see it as a zero-sum game where those groups took away your advantages. Now, 
Some of us might take a longer view and argue that it's the billionaires and the billionaire monkeys who actually are the ones taking away those, uh, you know, the, those what they see as those economic entitlements or their right to, um, you know, what broadly and, and inaccurately gets described as the, what people mostly understand is what we mean by the American dream in America, right? So uh, what most people would understand that phrase to mean is that each generation does better than the last, upward social mobility, um, that everybody can have you know, a house and they can, and they can afford the, the basic benefits of middle-class professional life. And what you have are um, a, a, you know, a growing population of uh, white people in America who are working two careers and cannot afford to put their kids through university. They cannot afford to get decent health care. Um, they, you know, and and they're and they're holding down, you know, jobs in the gig economy. And so that sense of um, of access to social benefit and to social privilege is um, is diminishing um, by the day. Now, as I say, we can all identify different culprits, quote unquote, um, for, you know, the, the reason for that loss of, um, of perceived benefits. So far, it's working for Trump. It has worked for Trump. Um, it's certainly what got him elected um, in 2016. Of course, we're talking right now in the midst of um, an explosion of the pandemic um, in the United States, uh, where, you know, 1,000 Americans are dying a day right now, and um, the concomitant economic collapse. So um, the, the and we're speaking um, uh, less than 100 days before uh, what will be an historic election, uh, whether it uh, whether Trump you know, manages to keep um, his place in the White House or not, it will be historic either way. And um, and at the moment, um, as we're speaking, uh, that ploy uh, to the white working class in America um, on, on Trump's part is uh, is failing. Uh, before our eyes. We're watching that support crumble. We're watching it crumble state by state. Um, we're watching states that should be safe GOP states or have been in, in the recent past um, suddenly be up for grabs. They're becoming swing states. Um, you know, the, the, the places that he thought he could depend on uh, votes for, he can no longer depend on. And, and a lot of what he was doing and what the GOP was helping him do was to short, was to gain power through minority politics. And so by claiming that this one minority, uh, white working class, non-university educated, um, should somehow be a synecdoche for the entire nation, that they should be the one group that universally, that is the universal identity, that is the common man, that is the real American, that is the, and, and you know, and the, and, the, and the right in America, uh, and indeed um, in Britain in, in slightly different ways, but the rhetoric is very comparable. This, this uh, appeal to middle America or to middle England, um, this appeal to the, to the um, you know, the left behind voters, um, this idea that there is a group that somehow, um, uh, speak, that somehow stands in for the whole country, for the normal American or the average American, when in point of fact, if, you know, if we talk about the common man in America, that common man is understood to be a common, to be a working class white man. It is not understood to be a Muslim man, although statistics, you know, so they were in the, um, I, I've written about this before, but in the, I've used this example before, but in the, um, you know, in the, in the 2016 election, there, people were using um, West Virginia coal miners as a kind of symbolic uh, Trump voter, right? And so they would say that's the common man is a West Virginia coal miner. But in fact, and, and you know, and you wouldn't say that the common man in America is understood to be a Muslim. But there are, in fact, more Mus more Muslim men in America than there are West Virginia coal miners. 
right? But you don't, we don't understand the common man to be Muslim. And that goes back to this point about discourse and narrative that we began with, which is that out of these racial discourses of the 19th century emerged this idea of whiteness as an invisible norm that was not a race, that was specifically the, the, it was the normal universal way of being, and then everybody else was particularized. So you then started talking about all these other groups, but there was this normative idea of invisible white maleness, um, and indeed in America of invisible white Protestant maleness, so that even Catholicism was, we forget this at our peril, that even Catholicism was seen as um, an alien identity and one to be protected against. So all of those other identity and got, identities got particularized, but there was this notion of a universal uh, white male. And we still see that in these, uh, in these lingering calls to the white working class, the assumption that the working class is white instead of, in America, uh, a black working class, which is absolutely... Um, you know, the, uh, the heart of the working class in America. And yet uh, we don't, our narratives don't talk about the working class as if there is a black working class. Um, and that of course is the, um, is the voter that uh, Joe Biden, as we all know, um, needs to reach and as the Biden campaign knows that it needs to reach. So it's gonna be very interesting to watch the political discourse in America over the next couple of months as they try to reframe some of these conversations to try to cut through um, the traction that Trump has been able to achieve with this particular minority group. But it is important to note that it is a minority group. I agree with Sarah about the deep structural issues um, that, uh, that discriminate against African-Americans. Um, I also agree with, with the point about the white working class. I, I, you know, I've long wondered about the way uh, academics and journalists and politi politicians talk about the white working class without recognizing its oddness and, and its odiousness. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's about how we differentially imagine the white and non-white populations. The white population is seen as divided by class. Non-whites are often seen as belonging to classless communities. And so the working class has come to be seen as um, primarily as white. But I also think that many of the issues that we often think of as issues specifically affecting um, black people, um, we often forget they also affect poor and working class whites. So you take something like police violence in America, which is of course at the, at the heart of the current protest, the Black Lives Matter movement. Black people suffer disproportionately from police killings, but we often forget that over 50% of those killed by police are white. And the best indicator of police violence is not actually race, but income. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to face police violence and to be killed. Um, and similarly, with, um, with, with, with the startlingly high prison numbers in America, um, there have been studies which have shown that these are better explained by class than by race, and that mass incarceration is about um, the incarceration of, uh, of working class people. Um, and African-Americans are disproportionately working class and poor, and so are likely to be disproportionately imprisoned and killed. And the, the point I'm trying to make is not that race and class are competitive causal categories to be set against each other, but that they become to be seen like that in many people's eyes because of the ways we, in which we view social problems through the lens of narrow ethnic or racial identities. 
And so we often forget the, the ways in which race and class um, uh, coalesce uh, and, 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 and how they both shape um, uh, people's lives. And I think that's another problem in the way we, we, we look at social problems in terms of identities rather than in those broader issues of class disadvantage as well as race. I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there, Kenan. That's um, absolutely fascinating, um, but we've run out of time. Um, thank you, Kenan, and thank you, Sarah, for a brilliant discussion. That's all from us. Thank you for joining us this week on the Prospect interview. You can read Sarah and Kenan's essays in our new issue, which is out on newsstands and also on the website. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.